This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Welcome to Late Boomers. I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Today on Late Boomers, we welcome our guest, Dr. Dan Morheim, certified internal medicine and emergency medicine doctor with over 40 years of frontline experience. He's a recipient of the AMA's prestigious Nathan Davis Award for Public Service, and he chaired the Department of Emergency Medicine at Franklin Square Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, for 13 years. He's currently on staff at Sinai and Northwest Hospitals, and for 16 years was on the faculty of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He was part of the state of Maryland's medical mission to Kuwait following the first Gulf War, and currently works with the Navajo Health Service and Healthcare for the Homeless. And Dr. Morheim served on the Maryland State Legislature for 24 years, sponsoring numerous bipartisan bills focusing on health care and the environment. He was the only physician in the 188-member Maryland General Assembly and was the Deputy Majority Leader and House Chair of the Joint Committee Healthcare Delivery and Finance. He's a runner and has won a number of 5K events for charity and the author of two books, the second he wrote with his wife, Shelley, has just been released. It's called Preparing for the Better End, Expert Lessons on Death and Dying for You and Your Loved Ones, a book that everyone should read and the subject of our episode. Say hello to our listeners, Dr. Dan. Hello, listeners, and great to be with you, Kathy and Mary. Thank you. You've received fantastic reviews for the book, including this one from the great Maya Angelou. Quote, Dr. Morheim helps us to see that while death does have its sting, it need not be bitter, and each of us can prepare for the end in better ways. End quote. How did your relationship with Angelou come about? It's a long story, but I'll try and make it brief. Uh, basically, my parents uh, knew her in Los Angeles when I was growing up as a little kid. Uh, they had met her in Europe before that, and I used to play with their son. Many years later, uh, they able to had, there was an occasion where we had a lunch with her and my father in Baltimore. And then 20 years later after that, when I wrote the book, my wife Shelley and I were sitting around. Who could we contact? So I found Maya Angelou's email. Of course, it was her agent. And I wrote an email. You may not remember me. I was a little kid. We met once. And uh, here's some of the things I've done. I've written this book. And to my utter astonishment, 30 minutes later, she called me. We had a wonderful phone conversation, and she said, why don't you come and stay with me for a couple of days in my house in, in North Carolina? Contact my staff. We'll make the arrangements. We made the arrangements and then had several amazing trips, spending quite a bit of quality and quantity time with Maya Angelou, one of the most profound, 
um, personal spiritual experiences that I've ever had. It was just astonishing and people coming and going and going with her to some events on occasion. It was just incredible. And then at times just sitting around the table talking. So it was- That is beautiful. I love that story. I do too. And I left her the first manuscript and she said, generally I don't endorse books. I get asked a lot. You can be sure she gets asked a lot. Um, But uh, she said, I'll take a look. And uh, two weeks later, she called me and said, I love your book. It's great. It's personal. It's um, practical. It's got great stories. I love it. Uh, We'll send you some quotes. And that's on the cover of the first book. Yay. Yeah. What an endorsement. And you had a quote from Maryland Senator Ben Cardin. Quote, Dan Morheim's knowledge as an ER doctor and his empathy for the dying and the living comes through in every chapter. He provides the questions we all should be asking and answering about death and dying. Well, I'm very appreciative that such a diverse group of distinguished people, including medical academicians, but also a well-known Buddhist teacher here in the area, uh, evangelical Christian minister endorsed the book, uh, Leon McDougall, who's a physician, who's president of the National Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest group of black physicians in the United States endorsed the book, Leanna Wen, Dr. Leanna Wen, who's on CNN and MSNBC all the time now and others. So it really speaks to the the challenge we face in talking about what's otherwise a very difficult issue or can be a difficult issue. But I try to look at it from the point of view of this is really about uh, managing something that we can't avoid. So we have a choice of putting our heads in the sand or taking advantage of wonderful tools that are available to us as the first generation in human history that likely has some say about how we die. And that's a really powerful concept. And I understand, you know, the the tension around it and the reluctance because I, I, I experience it too. Of course, I'm a human being like everybody else. But once you delve into it, all kinds of good things start to happen. And you begin your book with a chapter titled, My Dog Got Better Health Care Than My Mother. What do you mean by that? Well, I have, the first book came out in 2010, and the second book just came out a few days ago. So in between then and now, I've done literally hundreds, maybe thousands of presentations to all kinds of audiences, business groups, medical groups, community groups, faith-based groups. And I always leave a lot of time at the end by saying, look, I, I, I want to create a safe place where we can talk about this topic. So feel free to offer your questions, comments, personal attacks, whatever you like. You know, we need to share these discussions. And almost always somebody raises their hand and says, my dog got better care than my mother. And then they tell the story of their mother or grandmother or grandfather going through extended medical services long past any hope of recovery where their dog they could actually um, deal with in a more humane manner. I don't want to equate necessarily the value of animal life and human life. That's another subject. But I want the best of modern medicine. I love modern medicine. I'm a physician. I work hard uh, at it. And uh, you know, I believe in that. But there also comes a point in time where modern medicine ha- has run out of options. And we ought to recognize that and then make the best of the time that's allotted to us, which could be months or years, actually. And there's a number of tools, advanced directives, um, hospice care, palliative care, pain management, things like that. What most people fear when we think about it is really the fear of isolation and the fear of being in pain and suffering. And, and those are manageable now in ways that haven't been before. 
Talk about your own brush with death and how it affected your family. You have children, grandchildren, a lovely wife, and how knowing what you know now contributed to writing this book. Well, my own experience was um, about five, six years ago, I was in reasonably good shape, but uh, not as good as I am now. And I uh, woke up one morning with chest pain and had the good sense to call the ambulance right away. Uh, within two hours, I was through a procedure at the hospital. I had one artery blockage and uh, it was treated and I'm fine. So I was very fortunate to have all that work out so well. But through, through the process of it, I had an amazing sense of calmness. I knew what was going on. I, I could read the EKGs. I could do all those things. I treated patients with the condition that I had. And I, was, I, I thought I'd be freaked out and panicked, but I wasn't. Um, but that was uh, five years ago. I've been interested in this issue for long before that, primarily for my role as an ER doctor, where I've taken care of many people. You know, most, most of the problems are relatively routine from the doctor's point of view. Then there's a whole range of serious illness. And then there's a whole range of super critical illness of people with all kinds of problems, major medical, major trauma. I work at a trauma center in the middle of Baltimore City for the last 25 years. So you can kind of fill in the blanks of what, what kind of patients uh, I'd be seeing. And um, what I observed was that there were times I found myself doing things to patients in the name of healthcare that didn't feel right to me, didn't feel like healthcare felt like I was torturing them. And I, in fact, I used to say, we did these things to the patient. And then I had to own it and say, I did these things because I'm the one that put the tube in the windpipe. I'm the one that put in the central line, which is a large bore IV stuck in the neck or the chest or the groin. Um, I was doing these things. I was the one ordering in the initiation of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And what I came to realize is that what I really, really the decision, what I want to respect is what the patient would have wanted. Because this book sets, sets forth the choices we and our loved ones will face when dealing with illness and death and how we can honor our values and tell us about what could happen if we don't write out our choices. Well, anything could happen, but part of it is, and I think the two things that are most difficult is one, people will make decisions about what kind of care you want based on their projections. And those people could be family members who may or may not know you well, who've never had this discussion. It could be clinicians of all types. It could be committees, hospital committees. Every hospital has an ethics committee. Um, and, they, and they're you know, trying to make an assessment, but they don't even know you. All this only becomes operative if you're not awake, alert, and competent. If you're competent, you're making your own, you certainly have input into your own medical decisions. This, this all takes place when you're not really able to for one reason or another. And um, so that's the, the first thing that, that happens. But the other thing that dynamic that's often set up is family friction. And I've seen this a lot. There's also the famous Terry Schiavo case. That is when somebody hasn't made a decision, family members start to often congregate and they get into discussions about what to do. And sometimes those discussions when family members get together for any reason, Thanksgiving or holidays, you know, tensions can rise, guilt, uh, bruised feelings, and I've seen families break up over this, and people not talking to each other for decades because um, you know someone made a decision about what should happen to grandma or grandpa, and the other person didn't agree. I've also seen situations, and I tell this story in a book, that changed my perspective on this one. It was an elderly woman who had a complete neurological catastrophe. It was pretty evident. We did all the medical workup. And her family, as I went back and forth to the room where they were waiting for medical information for me, was really 
at odds with each other. I mean, all hell was breaking loose. Some people were saying, you know, let grandma die in peace. And others were saying, us treat her. And others were saying, treat her to the max. And they were screaming and yelling. It turned out that she did have an advanced directive. I read it and it said, if I'm in extreme state with no chance of recovery, I, I, don't, I want to allow natural death. I want no heroic efforts. So I went back in the room and I said, this is what she wrote. I am honor bound legally and ethically honor bound to respect that. So I'm going to go in the room and take out the tubes, take off the medicines, and you can come with me. Now, you might think things become more explosive or intense at that moment. In fact, the opposite happened. Everybody calmed down because the burden of this big decision had been removed from their shoulders, removed from them. We went into the room. I disconnected everything. The family gathered at the head of the bed, and they you know, held her hand and stroked her brow and whispered things in her ears and talked. I drifted to the back of the room and just watched this. And I thought to myself, this woman on the, on the gurney there took care of her family. But I, she has taught me a lesson. She's given me an education because it's not about me that we're always a me-oriented culture. She took care of this for her family. And if you say you love your family and the people around you, then you will take care of this basic paperwork called an advanced directive, which is free and legal in every state. It's been around for since 1991. And you'll explore the advantages of hospice care and palliative care. That didn't apply to her. But I went home that night this was many, many years ago. And I said to Shelley, we're going to complete our forms right now. They'd kind of been lying around. We hadn't done them. And uh, I made sure that we did. Um, talk more about advanced directives, what they should say. And also, do you know of any online sources we can access for them? Yeah, advanced directives are free and legal in every state. They're available for many sources. Obviously, anybody can search on the internet. AARP has a, a list. You can typically get them from most uh, or all state governments, hospitals. My personal favorite is called mydirectives.com, mydirectives.com. It's free. It walks you through the process. It's very easy to use. It has a lot of flexibility built in. So what is an advanced directive? An advanced directive is a form that you complete. No one else can complete yours. Only Mary can complete Mary's. Kathy can complete Kathy's. Dan can complete Dan's. Nobody can do it for you. If you want to know who can complete it, look in the mirror. That's the only one. And it, it designates a number of different things. The first thing it designates, and it usually takes five minutes to fill this out. You may have to think about it for a while, but it's a five to 10 minute exercise to complete one. The first thing says, what kind of care would I like <clears throat> if I'm in various conditions? And, and the choices typically are, you know, I want everything, the full court press on one extreme, and on the other extreme is, um, you know, pull the plug, but there's the middle path, and most of us choose the middle path, which is if I'm functioning and awake and alert and sort of, you know, enjoying life, not in pain, not in excuse, keep me going, uh, you know, and I want pretty good, you know, medical care at a certain point, allow natural death to take place. So that's the first condition. The second condition is who makes decisions for me if I can't make decisions for myself. And it doesn't have to be all an advanced illness. You could go into major surgery and just be, you know, under the under, under anesthesia for five hours. Sometimes decisions need to be made. So you designate somebody. Typically, it could be a spouse. It can be uh, adult children, siblings, whoever you like. You can um, put different kinds of order in there. Back to the annoying family friction. If you have a family relative who tends to um, dominate discussions when there's family issues going on, you could say, please do not let cousin Fred in the room when you're discussing my medical care. You can actually do that uh, too. 
And the third part of the advanced directive has to do with body disposition. A couple of important parts there. One is organ donation. Um, and my advanced directive says, please take all the organs that are useful to anybody. I would highly recommend that. Um, when I was in the Maryland legislature uh, back in 2008, I revamped our entire organ donation bill and it saved lots of lives. I mean, I didn't save the lives, but the bill set up the structure that allowed a lot of lives to be saved. And I remember that bill hearing where there were people who sat next to each other and one was the parent of somebody who had died, who donated organs and sitting next to them was the person who received the organs. And it was so, it was just, uh, you know, deeply moving. So I'm, I'm a complete organ donation advocate, but it's up to you. All these things are up to you, what you want. And also what happens to your body after there are a number of choices. You can donate it to medical school, to medical science. Um, and there's different kinds of burials. I will tell you that I advocate against cremation. Cremation is a very big carbon footprint. It's it, in the book. You can read just how much, but you basically have to heat a body up to 1900 degrees for two hours. And it's just uh, doesn't appeal to me. Um, there's, you know, funerals and cemeteries of all types, but I, I'm very much into now uh, the idea of a natural burial, and there's more and more natural burial sites around the United States where, for much less money, you're wrapped in a simple shroud and returned to the earth, and that appeals to me a lot more than spending a lot of money. Just to put one context to it, a typical 10-acre cemetery has enough stuff buried in it, enough resource, metal, wood, cement, uh, to build 40 homes, each with a swimming pool. I think that's not a good use of resource, but it's up to you. You want a big monument? You can have that. Not for me, though. And I wanted to ask you, there's a great chapter in the book about dementia in all forms and Alzheimer's. And when that's present, um, what happens? And because the statistic is so high, I wanted to ask you, like, um, there's a form special for that that you add to the advanced directive. Is that different or is that part of your advanced directive? That way, the form is there as part of the advanced directive. So yes, and dementia, Alzheimer's and the other, first of all, there's some treatable dementia. So you want to get a workup beforehand before we call it Alzheimer's. Uh, but it is, it, this is a situation. And I think the title of the chapter is there are no easy answers. Despite everything we do, there are things that simply aren't going to be easy to manage. And these aren't obscure things. These decisions are, all these decisions are taking place in every hospital in the United States, every hour, 24 seven, 365. There are families and patients and clinicians making these decisions. Somebody's a little bit demented and they break their hip. Do, do you operate or not? What if they get a pneumonia? Do you, do you treat it or not? Well, in some cases, yes. Maybe in some other cases, no. You know, all these things are as, as, as we're living longer, happier, more productive lives, um, people routinely still functioning in their 70s, doing great at their, in the 90s and into 100. That's a lot different when I started as a doctor, where if there's somebody 75 years old, that was kind of remarkable. That's pretty routine now. It's true. I mean, if we saw somebody that was 100 years old, we'd all go, wow, or 90, we'd go, wow, that's, that's very normal. There's a lot of healthcare that um, technology that's advanced and, we can, and we're gonna be taking advantage of it. But there comes a point where I wanna take advantage of the other things that are also out there. Advanced directive forms, free, easy to complete. My directives, you should send them to people, the appropriate people should not be hidden in a safety deposit box or some obscure location because it may be needed in a moment. Uh, hospice care, just 
is the last six months of life as best one can predict. Um, but just to give you th perspective on that, we have paid for, we're entitled to six months of hospice care. The average length of stay in hospice in the United States is about 20 days. So if you wanna look at it from a money point of view, you bought six months, but you're only spending 20 days worth. That doesn't make sense. Hospice is a wonderful service. And palliative care is to help people function and be in comfort. And that also uh, works real well. I'll just tell you one quick study. There were two uh, set of people with identical lung cancers. Once they both got full cancer treatment, uh, but one group got early palliative care. And the early, early palliative care group lived longer, was more content with life, and they spent less money. That's a really good trifecta. Live longer, happier, less costly. So what is palliative care? Palliative care is a uh, adjunct to hospice care, but it also stands on its own. And what it is, is helping people in their operational functions of daily living, uh, treating pain, treating anxiety, treating a bunch of different medical conditions that help them perform and, and be better. Unfortunately, in the past, uh, it, palliative and hospice care, the attitude of too many physicians and nurses and others has been, well, we can't do anything more for this person. Let's throw in the towel and call those people like there was some kind of outlier. I take a completely different point of view now, which is, and I'm guilty of that too, but uh, long ago I shed that. And uh, now I'd say, you know, if I got a bad diagnosis tomorrow, um, and if I, even if I had a five-year, 10-year projected lifespan, I'd call hospice now just to start investigating uh, what my choices were and where I might want to go to together. If, so. if you have no children and mm -hmm. you live away from family members, you don't have a partner, basically you're alone, what do you recommend? That's a really hard one. You've got to find, hopefully there's somebody you trust. Sometimes in some situations, it's a neighbor. But uh, in the end, uh, you know, if you don't designate anybody, then, then uh, hospital people, if you're in a hospital, are going to end up with the ethics committee, or we call patient care advisory committee. But I think almost even the most isolated people have somebody they can trust and rely on. I have an acquaintance, good friend, not even that good a friend, just a good acquaintance, um, whose wife died. He has uh, teenage daughters, and he asked me to be his uh, healthcare agent. Um, or, and, and working in conjunction with his daughters. It's not that we're real close, but he didn't have anybody else he felt comfortable with. And usually it's gonna be a family member, but maybe they're family members you're not comfortable with, but there's somebody else that you do trust. Yeah, but and- you know, this, you know this, if you don't do the paperwork, the default is a whole bunch of stuff that you may not want. And you can update or change your advanced directive anytime you like, as your circumstances change, uh, your relationship change, beliefs change, health condition changes. So, you know, it's a very fluid form. You just make sure that the most recent one is the one that's applied and that it's available to the folks who need to have. And talk about what doctors want for themselves, because that's a good point in the book. It's not always what they do, but it's what, what they want. And can you also, while you're at it, address the issue of assisted death and where that's currently legal? So those are two big questions. So let There's, me do yeah. one at a time here. So the uh, doctors, um, we, we, when I was training, and most of us when we were training, certainly in my generation were trained, you know, we do everything for the patient to the nth possible degree. And so we do that. But in studies of what doctors actually want, what's turning out is they don't really want that. We don't really want that. And I've talked to a lot of doctors and they say, well, if it was me, I wouldn't be doing this. I, I think that's a disconnect. 
I think we should offer the patients what we would want for ourselves, at least give them the option. And what I suggest to patients is, and I do this when I have to make medical decisions for myself or family, I'd ask the doctor, is this something you would do if I was, if you were me or if I was your loved one, would you recommend this procedure? That's a really telling question. And so I hope over time as the public becomes more familiar with advanced directives because only about 40% of us have completed them. I know that because I did the study and only half that 20% of the minority population when patients complete these forms, they'll become more available to clinicians and then clinicians will be more comfortable and honor them. But I've seen brilliant doctors who are making you know, incredibly challenging decisions in the nick of time when end of life care comes up, um, you know, they become a little unglued because we're then confronting our own mortality. And this happens to nurses and everybody in the clinical situation. We have to recognize that. So your second question was about? Uh, assisted death. So assisted dying is uh, not Dr. Kevorkian. It's uh, another option that's out there. It's legal in a few states. I think about seven, the last count. Uh, it's not legal in my state, but it is in Oregon, Washington, Montana, and a couple of other places. And what it allows depends on the structure of the state law, but it allows a person with uh, going through several steps uh, and their outline could include a medical consultation, two physicians, certain time lags, so nobody's doing anything impulsive. But in the end, they can get a prescription for medicine that uh, they can take. They have to be able to administer to themselves uh, that would end their life. And so that is allowed in a number of states. It's, Oregon has the most experience and it seems to have worked pretty well there. My perspective is this. I heard this legislation in Maryland uh, for two years when I was in the general, I was in general assembly for 24 years, but this came up for two over two years. Long hearings, very passionate people on all sides of the issue, and uh, and all very sincere. Uh, I would have ended up voting for the bill for the following reason. But first, I would say people ought to take advantage of all the things that are already there. If you already take advantage of advanced directives and hospice and palliative care, the number of people, small outlier group that might need this is really very small. It's a very emotional issue. It gets a lot of cocktail party conversation. You can get a lot more cocktail party or backyard conversation about should physicians be allowed to prescribe a medicine that people would take to die as opposed to uh, have you completed your paperwork that's been readily available to you since 1991. That is the nature of that issue. So it's, it, but there always are a few cases that are not gonna fit into every um, mold that we make. And I quote um, a young woman uh, who moved to Oregon, who had a young woman, terrible brain cancer. And I said, I can't say it any better than her statement. And so Brittany's statement is in there and people will make that decision for themselves. I think the legislation, putting on my legislative hat, needs to be very carefully written so that there's no inopportune things going on or inappropriate things going on. I think that can be done. So uh, it's a tough issue, but more important is complete advanced directives. And I, I, let me just say too, on this subject, it's not just for old people. I mean, I know we're the late boomers podcast here, but the three most famous cases in American legal history are women under 30. I can again tell you as an ER doctor, older people, They've had some thoughts about this. They know there's fewer years ahead in their lives as, as behind. And they've thought about end of life care, maybe had discussions with their significant others and their doctors and so forth. Young people, of course, remember back when we were 20 or 25, we didn't think in those terms. But they tend to get in trouble catastrophically. 
a major trauma, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a bursting of blood vessels in the brain. So it happens to young people, other kinds of things, a sudden serious catastrophic illness. And so that's why the three most famous cases in American medical legal history are women under 30. So when my kids turned 18, daddy gave them advanced directive forms to complete. And one of them said, gee, dad, when I was 60 and I checked organ donation for my driver's license. So it wasn't that big a deal. The whole thing about this, it's really not a big deal. Just get the forms, fill it out. If you don't like the way you fill it out a month later, change it. But you will have protected yourself and your family from a whole lot of stuff that you may not have wanted. Well, especially now when you have no idea uh, who is going to suffer from COVID-19. Um, it could be someone, a baby, or it could be, uh, you know, someone who's 100. Uh, but um, talk about the current pandemic, COVID-19, and what's your take on vaccines? Well, you really asked some good questions, you two. <laughs> so, <laughs> from the perspective of an advanced directive, it's always been important for people to have it. And what happens, it's important for people to go through this exercise pre-COVID, during COVID, and post-COVID. But it's especially important during COVID for two reasons. One is that people get ill so fast uh, that they, and they can't express themselves about what they want. So they on, get on a, a respirator and they're you know, having trouble breathing and coughing. And the second was that historically, we then often relied on family members at the bedside. I mean, I would go into a room, emergency room or the intensive care, wherever I was, but typically emergency room, and the family members were there. We could talk to them. Now, family members are not even down the hall. They're not even in the building. And we don't know sometimes who to call. Do I call the spouse? They have a, I don't know if they're married or separated or living together, getting along. Maybe this person would want their adult children or their sibling called, you know, and we have to be careful about what information we transmit to folks. Um, you know, so these are all sorts of issues why it's even more important now for clinicians from a clinical perspective to know who to talk to, what kind of things we can say and what, what the wishes of this person were um, so that we can manage them according to their own values, not my values, their values. So it's, it's more important now than ever. I have a little side question on the procedure of that that, that occurs to me. If you had an advanced directive and and you're waiting to go to the hospital and your breathing's getting worse and worse because you have COVID. And by the time you get there, are you bringing it with you? You're not gonna even think of that. And your healthcare agent can't come with you like your adult child. So how does the hospital even find out that you have one procedurally? Uh, well, that's a very good question. And that's part of the real challenge. I, uh, I, we're having to work those into electronic health record systems. Right now, patients are gonna to have to do a lot of this for themselves. They're gonna to have to ask these questions to their clinicians about their care. They're going to make sure their advanced directives are properly distributed so that they're available. I also recommend to folks that they prepare a very simple thing that I have called a medical go bag or medical go forms. Um, one of the things that happens in emergency medicine because, and that's where all these patients end up, is because every patient is a new encounter. We don't know them. So we, we've struggled to find out, we scurry around to computers and databases trying to find out their medical history, what medicines they're on. Here's what I recommend. Just, you can do this very quickly at home in under a half an hour. First, on the first sheet of paper, just have your name and the contact information of all the people you wanna have co contacted. Then have a very brief medical history that you can write for yourself. I have high blood pressure, I have diabetes, I had this major surgery, whatever it is. The next page, just list the medicines you take. 
On the next page, you can print out, if you've had any lab tests, print them out. Your doctor can give them to you and all the big corporate labs, you can sign on and get that. If you have imaging tests, x-rays, CAT scans, put those results there. It's another sheet of paper too. And then a graphic representation of your electrocardiogram, an actual EKG. I had a routine physical recently, I'm fine. And when the uh, technician did the EKG, I said, run a second one, because you're right there anyways. And that's what I carry with me. And then your advanced directive, if you have one, staple it together. And if you get hustled out to the hospital by the paramedics or by a family, take that with you and hand it to the ER doctor, nurse, physician assistant, whoever's taking care of you and say, and then they get your medical history and they'll expedite care and give much better care um, than that. So Won't that could, surprise you could keep hospital. on your phone, right? You can keep it on your phone. Any way that we can get information in my clinical world, we scrounge for information about people. And if you came in with a to-go bag like that, you'd blow, the head, blow their minds, right? They, well, they, they, they won't get that. Yeah, well, you know, we're, I'm trying to spread the word on that. But <laughs> yeah. You cannot rely on all the systems and all the databases. And I consult with a health IT company, so I understand that side of the universe as well. But this is about all about empowerment. This is about respecting, you know, one thing our boomer generation likes is control. It's one of, or at least influence over what's going on with us. It's one of our core American values, individual autonomy. And we exercise it in many arenas. But for some reason, we don't collectively exercise it here. And we ought to. So bringing in some simple forms that you can get online, you know, just putting a little medical information together, so easy, and it'll help the the clinicians do their job for your benefit. Right. All these things about your own values and life and all kinds of good stuff. That's uh, interesting because every, all the great sages say, you know, it's the contemplation of death that made me appreciate life more. You lose someone close, you appreciate life. I, I've talked to people who've had, you know, cancer. And they say, I, I, I wouldn't have wished for the cancer, but it's made me so aware of the value of life and, and the people around me. Now that I try to think of is, I don't want to get cancer to have that feeling. I don't have cancer. I've never had cancer. I don't want to have it. But I want to have that appreciation that, that mm -hmm. these serious diseases have brought to other people without actually going through that experience. And I think if you can project that a bit in this discussion, it's a really positive aspect of it. And can you talk a little bit about your time in the Maryland legislature and what bills you got passed and which were important that didn't pass and what do you foresee with our country's healthcare for the future in that regard? Let me say a word about vaccines, which Mary asked about. They're coming. Oh. And part of the that I think we need to, to, to do is have a national system for rolling out the vaccine. And so that because we're not taking, I think the vaccines are really promising, but we're not, some of the impacts, we're not going to be able to know for months and months and maybe years. So it may turn out that vaccine A works real well for women over 60. And vaccine B works real well for men under 30. And max vaccine C causes this side effect in a group that has diabetes. We don't know that. And there are health IT information technology ways to extract that. Um, there's a program called myvax.com. I don't want to get too deep into this one, but that's, that's that. Now to your other question, which was about um, the legislature in the legislative life. So yeah. as a legislator, I have to be involved in all sorts of issues. My constituents, you know, like everybody's constituents, they like that I'm a doctor. So obviously I was interested in healthcare. 
and I brought the teamwork that we have to emergency room in the emergency room to the legislature, at least I tried to. And so I dealt with education issues and a lot of environmental issues. And uh, I actually became the legislative expert in this, don't let your eyes glaze over, it was procurement. That is how government buys stuff. Because I saw this dynamic where um, the only way states get money, we're not the federal government, we have to have a balanced budget. So we can either raise taxes, which nobody particularly likes, or fees or surcharges, or we cut programs, which nobody really likes, especially if it's a program that's near and dear to your heart. And so I focused on government efficiencies, efficiencies in bulk purchasing, efficiencies in coordination. And this is really tedious stuff. But if you can save one or 2% of a billion dollars, you actually save a lot of money. And so one thing that I've worked on is um, having all the levels of state government in my state, and this probably applies in most, I know this applies to most states in the United States, buy their health insurance for their employees together. Another area I got really involved in and still am is ending war on drugs. As an ER doctor, I just uh, saw so much catastrophe from this utterly failed policy uh, called the war on drugs. After 50, 60 years of it, there's not one measurable data point that's better, more overdoses, more death, more use, tragedies in throughout all communities, especially minority communities, uh, disease spread, crime, you know, insurance, destroying families, all this stuff. And I was a strong uh, supporter very early on for treatment on demand 24 seven, 365, that if a substance abuser came in, we could get them into treatment right away. And also I was the first state legislator in the United States back in 2016 to put in legislation to decriminalize possession of small amounts of drugs. So many of the people I talked to, you know, they were doing something somewhat foolish uh, or maybe even inappropriate or wrong, and they got arrested for a small amount of drugs. They got a criminal record. And when that happened, doors to, you know, normal life closed and doors to criminal activity opened because they had trouble getting jobs, education, housing, employment, all that stuff they couldn't get. And so what's left? Drug dealing and all the associated bad stuff that goes with that prostitution um, and so on. So I, I felt that people shouldn't be arrested and get a criminal record just because they have a small amount of drugs. And Oregon finally just adopted that now in the last election cycle, they voted to do that. But I was the first state legislator to do that. And I took a lot of beatings for that. People thought I was crazy and nuts. And I understand that um, just like this issue, you know, kind of out there. But folks are coming around now to recognize that. And, and the actual history of the war on drugs goes back to the Nixon, and it goes back way back. But in the Nixon administration, there's a very telling uh, interview with John Ehrlich, who many of the boomers will remember. And I will send that quote to anybody who wants to see it. But basically he said, we created the war on drugs because we had two enemies, hippies and blacks. And so we could arrest them and put them in jail. And we knew we were lying about the drugs, but they were our political enemies. And that's how we got rid of them. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Yeah, we did. And so we've incarcerated millions of people and nothing is better. So I, I'm a strong advocate for different policies on that. Um, this has been so interesting. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Dan Morheim, for sharing his insights on one of the most important issues and on many issues we will face in our lifetimes. You can find Dr. Dan Morheim's book, The Better End, on his website, www.thebetterend.com. 
all the info and reviews about the book and where to purchase it are all on there. How to order it, you're going to need to get one. And Dr. Dan, is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to add? Just a minor correction. The website oh. is thebetterend.com, but the book is called Preparing for a Better End. Okay. So sure. Get yeah. the book title right. Practical lessons for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I typed that in there wrong. What the book is really is, is just a practical guide. It's an easy read. I hope you will agree because you've read it. Very straightforward, not preachy, um, and gets right to the heart of the matter so that you can read it and know what your choices are and what you want to do. And that's my goal. It's a great read. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this book, and I appreciate your spending the time with us today. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.